everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I am so excited today for author and comedian Gary Gullman. We're going to bring Gary out in just a second. But first, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please rate and review and follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Gary Goldman has been in comedy for over 25 years, and he's established himself as an eminent performer and peerless writer, whom the New York Times said is, quote, finally being recognized as one of the country's strongest comedians. He's made five TV specials, including the critically acclaimed new stand-up special for Max, Born on Third Base, and he recently released his memoir, Misfit, Growing Up Awkward in the 80s, and can also be seen in the 2019 international blockbuster Joker and the Hulu comedy series Life and Beth, alongside Amy Schumer. Gary, welcome back into the back room. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. So you're appropriately dressed for my next question, which has nothing to do with comedy, but everything to do with basketball. You're, <laughs> you're a Boston guy, although you've been living in yeah. New York for a bunch of years now. So yeah. obviously your Celtics are having a fantastic year. Are you still a Celtics fan, or did you switch oh over to the very exciting Knicks now that you're a New Yorker? No, I do I do enjoy the Knicks. I root for them except when they play the Celtics, but I I love the Celtics since, I guess, 1979-80 uh, season, which was Larry Bird's rookie year. Mm -hmm. So it was just the perfect time to fall in love with basketball and and such an, an exciting team and, and franchise. Mm. Well, they're killing it this year, but uh, the Patriots? Yeah, they look great. Patriots, that's a whole other... How does, oh, I... how does that feel after all these years of, like, invincibility? Couldn't give a fuck. <laughs> well, you and me both, brother. Yeah, I, I, I stopped following the Patriots when Bill Belichick sent a letter congratulating President Donald Trump. It just... Uh, it killed me. Yeah. I, I I no longer like Bobby Orr, Doug Flutie, all these people who I grew up looking up to and and they supported this just monster. So No, it, right. I mean same for New York. Like we you know, we, we get we get Aaron Rodgers and it's like, oh, but he's a dick, you know. It's like I know. <laughs> like oh, of, he's out of his mind. Out of his mind. Yeah, yeah, and now he's being I think he's being sued by Jimmy Kimmel for Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Which is awesome. I love that. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um but, you know, the, the whole Patriots thing opens up this whole, it kind of reinforces my belief that it's always about the players, you know? Like, yes. Like, you take Gronk and Brady away from Belichick, and what do you got? You got this oh. season, right? Like, you, you maybe, ha yeah, you have this season, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I, I found an analogy that I like in that Larry David was Jerry Seinfeld's Tom Brady. Right. <laughs> That's a great um, analogy. <laughs> yeah, that that just the, just showing them both without each other. Right. Has shown who was the who was the real genius and and innovator. Yeah. So, well, like you could take the Bulls back in the '90s and have me as the head coach, and they probably still would have played exactly the same. I know. <laughs> and yet, and yet, yeah, and and Phil Jackson is is it considered a genius and a guru? And he, right. any any time he coached anybody that didn't have two generational talents at least right with the bulls they had they had three at times mm -hmm. and it's, 
And uh, I mean, Michael Jordan, as much as I love Larry Bird, Michael Jordan's the greatest player I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, Larry Bird, he's, he's a different kind of greatest player. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Um, he, was, he was fun. Yeah. So my daughter and I, she's 19 years old, almost 20, actually, in a couple of weeks. And the other night I said to her, because like a lot of teenagers, especially coming out of COVID, whatever, you know, she deals with her own anxiety and depression. I said, I'm interviewing Gary on on Monday and we should watch The Great Depression together. (laughs) And we did. And she loved it. And, And I had seen it before a while ago, but... When we when we got to the the toilet paper on top of the well yeah 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 we both looked at each other and like we need some therapy because <laughs> <laughs> because we neither one of us can fucking put the toilet paper on the the rod like it's like, what is that about and of course you go into a whole explanation of that uh, that that's a that's a sign right yeah it re- it really is those things just they're they're so simple when you're feeling good and when you're d- feeling lousy. Even in levels of low-grade depression, those things feel like Sisyphean tasks. Well, you say that it is the one task that you can literally do just yeah. sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and, that's yeah. too, and that's too much. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's overwhelming, but it, it's, it's just... And, and I, I set about compiling just a, a list of those of those things when I was putting together that, that special. And it, and it was really, it was really fun to sort of get some redemption over those things that you're kind of, or I was kind of embarrassed by and, and hear the laughter, which is of recognition that I wasn't the only person who was, who was doing this. And, and there were people who would consider themselves functional. And, and yet when you take a look at it, it, it is a reason to maybe take a look at, at how you're feeling. Yeah, well, I think you've probably helped quite a lot of people because na- since then, she and I both are very cognizant of when we start to put it on top of the holder, we're like, no, 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 we have to, <laughs> let's take the extra 22 seconds and put it in the, the proper place. Uh, so you've been a busy guy this autumn. Congratulations. You yes. got so much going on. You're a very hardworking comedian and author. And I came across, this was, I found this funny. I came across a Forbes interview that you did. Oh, yeah. And it was like totally financial. Now, you have uh, an accounting and finance background, so I I see there's some connectivity. But I I loved when one of the questions was about your revenue streams. (laughs) Like, I was wondering what's in your head in that moment. Like, well, this is a different kind of interview. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I think it was was different from any other interview, and I've always found it just I, I resent commerce and and finance even though i studied it in college because i had been convinced that that was the only area that a that a person could find a job and and so I, ever since then when i've been intersected with with commerce or finance i've i've bristled but i felt like th- these were these were things that i hadn't that I had never shared with anybody or or considered, and so I and and also there's this feeling when you're being interviewed that you should that you should be a good partner in the interview and answer these questions. But if 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 another comedian asked me about revenue streams or or uh, any any kind of 
commerce or production or anything like that, I would I would tell them to to focus on on what's important and what matters. But I I I wanted to be a good interview subject, and also I figured that people were going there for information. And my wife had told me that it was a very helpful magazine for young women who were who were trying to learn about um learn about finance and and investing and things like that that she had gotten information from it herself and and so I felt like I was providing some kind of service and then the woman who asked the question was so nice that that I answered but yeah it really it really threw me off because I I I at least want to only concentrate on my jokes and and my shows but I do have to kind of consider what I'm going to leave my leave my wife right yeah I mean per- personally I personally when it comes to Gary Goldman I find all the comedy stuff boring I, I was really fascinated that you <laughs> That listening to you talk about SEP IRAs like that. Yeah, but I, but I can I, we talk? I, can we do this whole interview about finance? If, are you are you okay yeah, with that? Yeah, it was it was only my wife because I was telling her on the way to the interview. I said I I don't want to do this. I I I resent any kind of the talk about money or or income. And and she told me that she had read a lot of interesting articles and i mm. and i i thought all right i i should be of of service i i, th- I think that's become a a sort of a a subtext of of what i've wanted to do ever since i got better from my my depression that i wa- wanted to be of of some kind of service to humanity mm. well on that note my first question is about irrevocable trusts i'm curious no i'm kidding um <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's talk about your new Max special. The first question I want to ask you, though, as a guy who spent most of my career in marketing, how are you feeling about the new brand, Max versus HBO? Like, what's your thought? Oh, thinking? I, I'm You're not give a I shit. Mean, I loved HBO Max because it, it it collected all these things that I loved, which is sort of a there's The Wire, there's Sopranos, and there's Batman, all on the same. All on the same site, and then there are a lot of specials on there and documentaries that my friend um, Judd Apatow and Mike Bonfiglio directed, like about Gary Shandling mm-hmm. and George Carlin. So it's this great site for what I'm into, and I I also have gotten no no love or interest from Netflix and HBO. Also produced and funded my my last special, so I have loyalty and, and allegiance with so i i have nothing but positive things to say like they tr- have treated my wife and i so well they've mm. flown us to places for promotion and and it's it's just been a, a delightful partnership i i i guess and just do little things like the there's a, a woman named nina rosenstein who's a producer and an administrator there i i don't know if that's the proper word but she will send me very useful gifts frequently. Uh, um, a thing that helped me to fold my laundry easier, and uh, a hot water maker, and and so these are things that I've never gotten from any other business involvement. So, mm. 
I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for the, uh, generosity they've given to me and my, my family, but I don't know the, the outside opinion on the brand because mm. most people are not working for them, but I will say that working with and for them ha has been nothing but pleasant. I had a great, a similar experience when I directed my documentary about Adrian, the people there were amazing. Right. And just personally yeah. that I've always loved that HBO brand, but Yes. Um, and so Conan O'Brien is the EP on your special. Yeah. And you guys have a long-term relationship, or was that something that is only recent? Well, no, I mean, I, I guess our relationship started in, in around, I want to say, 2012 or 2013 when I, when I made an appearance. And then that led to more appearances, and the one, the one appearance I did where I did a, the, the abbreviating of the states... I mean that changed my changed my career and therefore my my life. It, it just made made it a lot easier to to sell tickets. And so, the the relationship had been really one sided in that in that um, I would give him five minutes of jokes and he he would make me much more famous than I had any right to be. And then and then we showed my manager showed him this special that I had that I had funded on my own. And then he and and some of his his producers uh, edited the footage and really made it. They really added value. I was so mm. impressed with how it came out. And and so they they um, they gave me a, a a nice check and and put their name on it, which which really helps because their name is much more Conan's name is much more recognizable than mine. And then I got to do is his podcast and mm -hmm. we had a great time. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I, I, we text back and forth while watching Celtics games, but <laughs> I would say, um, we're friendly. Mm -hmm. I, I consider a friend more somebody who I would, I would have dinner last minute, but, um, but maybe someday. No, professionally, obviously it's a great yeah. uh, re relationship. How long does it take to put a special like that together from concept to execution? Oh, geez. I mean, I probably could have filmed that special a year after the pandemic. The so it, I would say two years mm -hmm. is a good amount of time to let jokes and and stories percolate. Mm -hmm. And then this this coming special, my next special, which is based on a tour I'm doing now, I think I started writing it in May, and I could shoot it. I could shoot it tomorrow. It, it just came mm. together much. quicker than anything has come together before and it, and it's it's i read something years ago that that Maya Angelou said that you can't run out of creativity the more you create the more you have and or something like that she said it much more poetically but i've i've found that to be so true and that i i used to sort of hoard my creativity and think oh the the next idea is going to be so long that i better really really work on this idea and and it creates a, a sort of a mindset of of uh need or want and and this new approach where i wrote a book and wrote a new special in the same same three years that seems to be seems to be the answer to my my fears of of running out of jokes is <laughs> is just just keep it keep going and and don't be so precious with everything you you write and and conceive of that that it's 
partly a confidence thing. Mm -hmm. So the special is called Born on Third Base, which most of us usually associate with the full phrase Born on Third Base, thinks he hit a triple. You you obviously belong to that uh, very small class of Jews called poor. Um, So (laughs) what was the thinking behind, perhaps other than the obvious, of of calling it Born on Third Base? Because you clearly weren't Born on Third Base. Yeah, but that's a really good question. And... And because I have a really good answer to it, I conceived of the title before I before I put together the the set. I always loved that expression. He was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. And it's always a person who was given everything and they walk around like they were self made or so hardworking. And the and the I mean the the Trump family are good, great examples of of that and and before that George W Bush. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, I I conceived of this idea that I was going to to also take the 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 label in that I felt I was born on third base even though I grew up we were we we're on welfare but I was a white male born in the 1970s in Massachusetts where if you could put together $2000 you could you could have a full year of tuition at a mm-hmm. state university and and so there was a, a much better safety net mm-hmm. and and there were there were so many more advantages for white men than there were for any other category of of Americans and so i i i thought that was that would eventually i really believed i could make it funny that mm-hmm. whole idea and i was never able to but i really liked the title and I, I i like titles that don't give away anything and i also like to watch things or listen to music and think oh man they never mentioned the title why did they call it that and and so i was able to do that but i and and also it gives people like you with with um curiosity uh, an opportunity for me to, to fill them in so mm-hmm. I, I i like it mm-hmm. and i gotta say mommy look <laughs> brilliant i i mean that Thank is you. so funny and but so uh smart in terms of getting into the psyche of comics and performers who are looking for that that affirmation yeah i mean i i think it's a it's part of the 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 self-realization or the self-awareness that over the years through through therapy especially my my therapist since 2006 or 2007 that that certain ideas and and hundreds of sessions before I even put it all together but I I was realizing that that a lot of what was going on on stage with my relationship with the with the audience and and certain for instance i am very sensitive to any kind of heckling or disturbance in the audience and it became clear over the years that i was sort of it it was replaying these these dinners and get-togethers with my family where my brothers or or somebody else would interrupt me or or criticize me or stifle joy or 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 reprimand me or criticize me and and so 
I I realized, and and I say it in the special, I had to tell myself the audience is not your family. These people, for the most part, are are rooting for you, and they're they're on your side. They're not trying to trip you up. But I I realized that also that this this thing, one of the things I get from comedy is this attention that I didn't get growing up, and that I I clearly needed and desired and and felt I deserved and and so I've 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 done a I've done a lot of work at at being able to get more attention than I was than I was given. Mm-hmm. Well my my favorite line of, of the special and you just referred to it is when your therapist reminds you that yeah. the audience is not your family because yeah. the audience is actually rooting for you. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've I've sort of analyzed and parsed that idea. And one thing, and, and maybe this is is being too generous, but I think that sometimes a family is looking out for you to try and see you not get hurt, and so they try to hold you back so that you won't risk anything and feel the pain of being rejected or losing or or things like that but it also the other side of that is they're telling you implicitly that they don't believe in you right right one of the things that i love about your comedy and i think is what a lot of people are really drawn to is that you do have a base you'd say it's librarians and <laughs> middle middle-aged jewish women but it's really you're 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 not doing typical setup punchline. You you're you're really a master at long form storytelling. And it's also very cerebral, right? In in your special you mention a tale of two cities, Kafka, Paramecium. You 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 bring up Eugene V. Debs for fuck's sake. I mean like <laughs> like these are incredible and this is one reason I always loved Dennis Miller back in the day, putting aside his politics, is because his oh, yeah, refer- his references were yeah. so intellectually oriented and if you kind of half understood them you found it hilarious yeah. you know yeah and so you do that a lot and then at the end when you referred to in medias res uh-huh i was like wow first i actually had to go and put subtitles on because i've never heard that term before because i thought you oh, were wow. saying in immediate stress and i was like well that makes sense given all of what he's talking about <laughs> But people respond to that. And I think that's what sets you apart from a lot of the comics out there today. Well, th- thank you. I appreciate that. I, I mean, it's, it's partially intentional in that I wanted to set myself apart from the other comedians so that I could get more work and do more comedy because that was, that was always my aim, was just to get more, more shows. Mm-hmm. And... And I, I found that one of the easier ways to to stand out from the other comedians was was to just to write to a to a level just a little bit above where everybody else was was writing. So if everybody else was writing at a seventh grade level, I would write at a ninth or <laughs> or tenth grade level. And then very fortunately, the type of people who like that type of humor came to see me. And and so I was able to do these things. And I guess the other part of it is I always thought I'm not exceptionally intelligent or or I don't have a genius IQ or anything like that. So I think most people are pretty smart and, and will know this. And if they don't, 
um, the people who do get it will will really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, so if not everybody gets it, that's that's fine. And I always liked those jokes that were either on The Simpsons or or Dennis Miller that I would think, oh my gosh, that feels like that was just for me. And when you extrapolate the just for me into an audience of thousands or hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. or whatever you're getting when you have a, a TV broadcast, it it's it becomes significant and it's and it's enough to sell a couple hundred seats in in a number of different cities. Mm -hmm. And and setting that higher standard for yourself is really smart. I mean, you know, in the past when he was coming up, people would talk about Jerry Seinfeld. He's he doesn't curse. He's very clean. And you look at how far he's gone. I mean, he's, he's you know, he's got a whole yeah. building, a whole building for his Porsches, and you can't even put a toaster yeah. on the on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> but the the thing with with Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno, who were guys that I admired coming up, was they they didn't swear because of some sort of of parochial or puritanical reasons. It was it was kind of a marketing decision and 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 i feel like that was part of part of the reason i didn't swear was because coming up in boston the other comedians swore so much that i could i could stand out by not swearing but the other thing is that as i've been doing it now over 30 years it would make it too easy mm, right it, it, it's just to put an f swear or or other words in there that will make the audience laugh it's just it's it provides no challenge and and while i don't i don't really covet enormous challenges i i do like some challenge so i i i can't imagine how easy it would be if i could take some jokes that didn't work and throw the f swear or or something like that in there it would it would be it would be like dunking all the time which which you can imagine you could it's hard to imagine for short people but like us who can't dunk all the time but it would get tiresome if you were dunking over everybody all the time mm -hmm. well you know it's it's interesting what you're saying because uh i, I love a lot of com comics and uh, dating back like to the richard Pryor days like i love he's still to yeah. me the funniest guy ever and he was as blue yeah. as they come but he used profanity in such a unique deep meaningful way it wasn't gratuitous at all um no. and there's a lot of comics that do take that easy route yeah. um but when when i hear someone like you talk about ish versus esque like <laughs> that's my ultimate kind of comedy where i can go wow that's really smart because it's not cheap and it's not easy well thanks yeah i mean i i mean there's there's this limitation in comedy which is which is that just about every thing you can think of has already been made into a joke. And so when you have these small opportunities to do something that maybe hasn't been joked about before, whether it's the, the suffix esque or the suffix fold or something like that. And, and I just, I, my, my, uh, my serotonin and, and dopamine goes, goes for a, a, a long run when, when I'm able to find those things, because it's it's also tied to my to my survival instinct, which is I feel like I I need to get better as a comedian in order to keep doing this thing that I've that I've been in love with since I was four or five years old. Mm -hmm. But you don't talk about politics in your 
in your routine. And um, not, explic not explicitly, but I think it's clear in every joke who I would vote for. Right. Well, that is true. But is that a, a yeah. really conscious choice not to delve into those waters, especially with how emotionally charged that the landscape is today? It is conscious, but it is. And you can help me out as a friend because it's also a little bit delusional. But I consciously avoid topical, which is always political, is always so topical. I consciously avoid topical because I have this delusion that the jokes will somehow survive after I'm gone. And, and I mean, jokes are the, are the sandcastles of, of art, really. It's, it's few and far between. Pryor is one. Bob Newhart is one. That I can listen to albums from 40, 50 years ago and still think, oh, that's, that's brilliant. Carlin, uh, um, Bill Hicks. Right. I, but there are few and, and far between, and, and it's just so rare. So it's, it's delusional, but I, I also I'm a, I'm a great admirer of uh, Don Quixote. I, I, I feel we should, we should spend a, 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 at least a small percentage of our lives tilting at some, some windmills just in case. Just in case. So what you're saying essentially is that 30, 40, 50 years from now, you don't think people are going to remember you for your Vivek Ramaswamy jokes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good point. That's, I, I get it. Yeah. I mean, I love listening to old Bill Hicks, but I notice that I'm not as interested in hearing his takes on Billy Ray Cyrus <laughs> as I am just his takes on, on life and philosophy. It's really interesting that those things really hold up his his mm -hmm. meaning of life type things and his what would you call it sort of his, his existentialism mm -hmm. that that always shine through and and so i i i try to steer my my act more more towards things that are quote unquote evergreen but right, it's right and it it's a bit of a delusion well it's like prior is talking about the differences between black and white people like it's timeless right yeah. But it's also what you're doing is also a very smart business decision. You know, it's like Michael Jordan saying, why am I not political? Because half of the country, which is Republican, buys sneakers. Right. So like why consciously piss off potentially half your audience? Right. And so potentially, but I would be willing to bet that 95 percent of my audience has identical political yeah. opinions. To That's me. A, yeah, I, just, I, I wouldn't have a problem with with doing it if I I felt like the other thing is I can't imagine that jokes can change your mind about who you're going to vote for. I love the expression sometimes not taking a side is taking a side. So I don't want people to think that I I'm I'm a fence sitter, mm -hmm. but I do I do make it clear that I am in favor of reducing the suffering of of poor and marginalized and, and oppressed peoples. Mm -hmm. Well, we opened up earlier that you, you referenced the Trump family when it came to being born on third base and thinking you had a triple. So it's out there now. You're, you're whole yeah, political. Yeah. Yeah. You've just yeah. bared your political soul. Uh, I'm not going to give it away, obviously, because I don't do spoilers, but I, I will say the ending of your special, uh, to me, is perhaps one of the greatest uh, examples of callback ever. So I'm just gonna float. Oh, just gonna float that out there for the people listening to this. You talk a lot about Jews, and I want. You, I'm sitting here with three Jews, and myself included, uh, <laughs> in the studio. 
And uh, actually, the three of us just launched a podcast called Jew 2, which Ooh. is three us three sitting around with both a, a non-Jewish and a, and a Jewish guest, perhaps, each week, talking about religion, the cultural differences, cultural similarities, et cetera, et cetera. It's really funny. We just finished one with yeah. Mo- Mocha Joe from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Severio Guerra. Uh, it's oh, hilar- cool. h- hilarious. Um, in fact, you, you should do it sometime. But I wanted to ask yeah, you, I do would- you... Do you, cons- do, do you consider yourself a Jewish comic? Do I? Yeah. Not, I not that not you're a comedian comic? and you're Jewish, but if someone was to like say, oh, the great Jewish comics of the day, like do you see yourself yeah. that way, even though you may not talk about Jews and being Jewish all the time in your bits, but you, you do infuse a lot of your, yeah. your culture and heritage into your comedy. I think if you took every... Jewish person on the planet uh, were somehow able to put in to them where they fall on the spectrum of how observant they are, how culturally um, aware of their Jewishness, what they uh, believe, how much how much schooling they had, and then divided by all those Jewish people, I think I would be the average Jewish experience, and and so. I, I not only consider myself a, a Jewish comic, I think I'm, I'm one of the great examples of the Jewish comic in that there are some Jewish comics who never mention that they are Jewish. And there are some Jewish comics, Jackie Mason being sort of the, the um, epitome of it. There's not a second where he's not either explicitly or implicitly announcing I am a I am a a Jew, and I, 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 I think initially, it, again, it was a, a way to set myself apart from the other comedians in Boston who were not talking about being Jewish. They were mostly Irish people or or Italian people, and they, if they talked about anything, they would talk about that that aspect of their life. So I was able to be the only Jewish guy on a lot of shows. And I, I also felt this need to express how I, how I Jewed, if you will, how I, how I was going about it. And, and I say it explicitly in the, in the special that I'm a member of a group that is known for having a, an attribute that some would consider positive, that the, we are very good business people and that, we, that we're financially <laughs> secure. And, and yet I grew up and we were... And I'm sure the average Jewish person is probably the average American in terms of wealth, probably middle class, like most of the people. So I, but the big attention is put on incredibly rich Jewish people, as as is the intention put on a lot of minorities. The the most well known of them are generally well off. Anyhow, mm-hmm. I I. Again, I feel like, and this is probably a feeling amongst a lot of Jewish people, especially of my generation and my father's generation, where you had to be kind of a spokesperson and an example of your people so that people would would think well of your entire race, which I think is a is a is a terrible thing that that is put upon us and and nobody should have to be an example for their people so that other people don't discriminate against them. But I, I always felt like I, I was I was being judged by more than just my own individual contributions, but also how I represented my my 
people, and I, I knew growing up how proud Jewish people were of people who achieved and who were also Jewish, so I, I felt sort of an obligation. So that is the longest answer to a question. Do you think you are God, a Jewish comic? That was yes, so 100%. Jewy, that answer. <laughs> Get to the point. Yeah. Um, so talk about the book. Uh, it's an interesting story behind the name, Misfit. Yeah. I, I'm i a big fan of, of Rush, and there was a song that they, they did. I think it came out in 1982, but I was exposed to it later than that, and it, and it really resonated. And it, it's called Subdivisions, and it's about growing up in the suburbs. And, and there's, a, there's a sentence where he says, nowhere else is the, is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. And, and it just, I mean, it really was, it's just so, such an efficient sentence and says so much. And, and I, I felt so connected to that. And so the, the word misfit and just every, you, you see, if you read the, the book that, that in every situation, I didn't really fit. I went to Hebrew school amongst people that were similar to me and I, and I didn't connect there. And I went to a, a Jewish summer camp and I, I didn't connect there. And then I played basketball and, and I mean, just for the fact that I was into rush, you're not going to get a, a, a lot of people into rush on a basketball team. And then football where I was a, a really sensitive, shy kid trying to excel and in some cases excelling in this sport that is really for brutes, Philistines, and Cretans. <laughs> Did you ever see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction of Rush? Yes. That was epic, epic. And uh, also, yes. Getty Lee, Jewish. Yes. Uh, uh, Who knew? Gershon Eliezer <laughs> Weinrib. I, I just, uh, I listened to his to his uh, memoir, which is extraordinary. I think it helps if you're a Rush fan, but mm -hmm. it's just so well-written, and he's got such a great ear, and he's such a sharp, kind, thoughtful person that it, it was wonderful. It was one of my favorite books last year. Mm -hmm. And you open the book with a quote from Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Why was Mr. Rogers such an influence in your life? I think... For me, Mr. Rogers is a, kind of a, a secular saint. I, I I think I'm, I'm actually it's it's funny you should ask because I'm listening to um, a book, a biography of him called uh, The Good Neighbor, and it it talks about his his um, education in the in the seminary, and he was a Presbyterian minister, and everybody who encountered him said that they felt like this is what what Jesus would have been like if he had if he had lived in modern times that mm. he would have been this generous and this kind and this thoughtful and looked out for the, for the children and the, and the poor. And I, I just, he was such an enormous part of my life along with, with Sesame street growing up. Mm -hmm. I, I single moms had this, this one piece of assistance growing up and, and we didn't have a VCR. The VCR wasn't available yet and and babysitters and child care was was something very unusual or very expensive but for for a block of a, at least two hours you had sesame street followed by mr rogers and the electric company and and most kids could sit transfixed by that and and mr rogers was just such an important 
person in in my life and and not a day goes by where I don't think of something that he, that he had said or a way that he had made me feel and I and I thought this one quote that I had come across while reading another another book about him that was actually published by the same the same company that it it talked about I I can't remember the exact words but about how we we spend our whole lives considering the the events of our of our childhood and and that and when he said oh that's that's a normal thing to do it made me feel really good and it and it also is sort of the the subtext of the of the project which is that i i i analyzed my kindergarten through 12th grade memories and and for whatever reason those memories are are I've I've been told remarkable that I that I have a memory from that that is unusual for people to have about about that period of time mm. in their lives. So it it was it, it was it was definitely going to be a, a Fred Rogers quote to start the book, and there were there were at least a half a dozen that would have been equally helpful. But I I thought that one was ideal. Mm -hmm. And you structure the book. Each chapter is a specific grade: first grade, second grade, yeah. third grade. And speaking of your memory, which is pretty amazing that you go back that far, I wanted to know, like, why? Why did you start there? Why not like the womb or just early toddler, <laughs> early toddler years? Yeah, I I guess the 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 one thing that I think is an advantage if you're going to memorize things is having a box to put the memory in. So when, when you start school, you, you can think, oh, this happened in kindergarten. And that also gives you the year. And, and based on the holidays and things like that, you can kind of figure out the, the time. So I, I think that's what's missing as we get older. So if you say, what happened when you were 43? I don't really remember, but I remember being five because I was in kindergarten and I can remember going on the first day of school and picking up this kid who I would actually become friends with again in, in uh, when we played basketball together in, in high school 10 years later when I was in 10th grade. So it just the, the thing that, that is really helpful in, in memorizing things is just having a box to put the, the different components in. Mm. And in high school, it's clear you have the dubious distinction of having been both a sports star and a virgin. Which uh, not a lot of kids pull off in high school. <laughs> yeah. tell, tell us about that a little bit. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it, it's just, it can't be talked about, I, I don't think, without talking about the, the mental illness aspect of it, where your, your brain, your depression, your anxiety is telling you you're, you're ugly, you're, you're not talented, Everybody's laughing at you, and and you're you're lucky to have the two or three friends you do have because if mm. they knew um, the real you, they they would run away and and think you were a complete loser. So it's 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 not surprising when you add the the mental illness component of it, especially where it's where it's not diagnosed, where I had nobody to share it with. I I, I think there's a different a different version of me in a universe where I was in in therapy or comfortable with that and or had a a parent or a, or a friend or brother who I could tell what I was really thinking and also who could interpret that and and give me some some insight because there there just there weren't that many people back then even if I had 
even if I had understood what was going on. Mm. I want to end on something I heard uh, you say, which is, it's never been a better time to be a stand-up comedian and mentally ill. Oh, yeah. Because I find that hilarious, <laughs> but I also find it really poignant because it speaks to your honesty about your condition and how you've dealt with it and still deal with it. And I, I think it was just a really honest thing to to hear you say oh well well, well thank you i i i do like to re repeat that because it does provide some some hope in that and and it's interesting because i will get 99 people who say that made me feel a little bit better and then there will be one person who will point out how hard it is to afford therapy and how the drugs have a lot of side effects and i understand that and i feel sorry for that person but i i will say if you had to choose a time in history when you would have this thing that is that is by no means uh easily cured or or treated uh you would pick now mm -hmm. I, I i i mean somebody in my condition many years ago would not have the different treatments available to them and there wouldn't be the understanding within the community and at work and there wouldn't be the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, which makes it, you, you can't fire somebody just for being mentally ill. So it's just a great time. And it, it was probably a better time to be a stand-up comedian when you could go on the Johnny Carson show and supposedly be famous the next day or, or something. But there were only like, and I'm exaggerating, there were only like nine comedians at the time. Mm -hmm. And and so now it is it is much easier to do this thing as much as you, as not as much as you want, but more frequently than ever before. There are more outlets, there are more opportunities, and you're probably not going to become rich and famous in either time period, but you'll get to do more comedy now than you would have, say, in, in 1968. Yeah, I think it's very clear about what you said. I mean, it's certainly the awareness on mental uh, illness and mental health is way more prevalent today than it ever was. And, you know, try, yeah. pi try pitching HBO, a special called The Great Depression 20 years ago, right? <laughs> like, yeah. So, like, it's a great time to be a comedian and if you happen to have issues like that that you're dealing with. So, um, Gary, this was great. Thanks for coming on again. You're on fire, so keep going. I feel really good. Thank you so much, Andy. It was great reconnecting, and, and let's do uh, uh, Jew 2 sometime this year. You got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take care, Gary. Peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Music